Hey, how are you doing? I'm Steve Folland. Welcome to season 15 of the Being Freelance podcast. Yes, we're back. This episode of Being Freelance is supported by WithJack. WithJack exists to help keep you in business by supporting you financially or legally if you have problems with a client. You can get help chasing overdue invoices, support if there's a contract dispute, but most importantly, the confidence to navigate bumpy projects and handle difficult clients. Think of insurance as having an in-house legal team who have your back without the major expense. With zero cancellation fees and monthly plans, you have complete control over your insurance. Visit withjack.co.uk and be a confident freelancer. And right now, let's find out what it's like being freelance for illustrator Kendall Hillegas. There's like multiple levels of not knowing something. Like sometimes you, you don't know something and then sometimes you don't even know what you don't know. So... You can't even look for it. I've always focused more on making the kind of work that I think that the clients want and then putting it out there really regularly. From the time I, it sort of clicked in my head that I could do this for a job, I have looked at every single client as a learning experience, and I still do. Yes, and there is Kendall. I can't wait for you to hear her story. It is coming up in just a moment. We are back after the summer break here in the Northern Hemisphere. Just making it back in as autumn kicks in. How are you? I hope you're doing all right. I hope you had a good couple of months while we had a bit of a break over here. It's all still been going off in the Being Freelance community, though. If you've not joined us and the other freelancers from around the world, please do come join us. There's links at beingfreelance.com. Now, as we head back in a few months toward Christmas, it's all back. The Cookie Collective, which is like our mastermind. The book clubs, you can read business books with uh, fellow freelancers, the non-employee of the week awards. Anyway, it's all happening, and I'll leave you to come and find us at beingfreelance.com. Uh, also, oh, <laughs> I didn't even mention the course. Yes, if you're new to freelancing, there's also a course. All the things you need to know, backed up by hundreds of guests at the Being Freelance podcast over the years. You can find details at beingfreelance.com. Whew, tick. Right. Tell I'm a little bit rusty. I've had a, you see, had a little break. Too much ice cream. Forgotten the things I meant to say. Let's crack on though, and let somebody else do the talking because we're off to Pennsylvania to chat to freelance illustrator Kendall Hilligas. Hey, Kendall. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. As ever, how about we get started hearing how you got started being freelance? So I went to school for painting. It was more of a fine arts program, didn't really have any commercial component to it. It was just learning how to kind of like a classical oil painting program and graduated from that and had, well, basically no idea what to do (laughs) with it. I kind of started out thinking, you know, I'll try to do like create a large body of work and get in a gallery, which is basically all that you know to do when you've come from a, a fine art program and hit a few bumps in the road, both related to art and then also really mainly related to just my personal life. I ended up actually getting pretty sick right after college. I hope it's okay to go into this. This is like the primary yeah, yeah the primary thing that, um, that got me going uh, with freelance and um, ended up very, really very ill and had a really hard time getting diagnosed and uh, ended up just after, you know, probably I think eight or nine months after graduating, deciding that I was going to have nothing to do with art ever again. And that I was done with that, done with making stuff. And I needed to do something, you know, quote unquote, important. So I started working as a tutor and as an organizer, community organizer. And I did that for a number of years, actually. I did that for like four years. And that whole time I was still, you know, dealing with health stuff intermittently and undiagnosed. And eventually did get diagnosed um, and was able to get on um, on a treatment regimen. And the doctor who I was seeing at the time strongly advised that I should walk away from the job that I was doing, which at that time was was mostly organizing and was working, you know, like 60 or 70 hours a week. And it was extremely stressful um, doing good work. But it, it was it was really yeah, it was really very stressful. At that point, my partner had a a regular job and had health insurance. You know, we're in the U.S., so that's like a big concern is uh, being able to maintain health insurance. So I was able to walk away from my job for a time and just found myself sitting at home alone and was actually pretty depressed, of course, that makes sense. And it was my younger sister, actually, who she's always, you know, those people who just know what they want to do and they're just driven and they just do it. She's Mm. one of those kind of people. 
And so she, she was in art as well. She was actually a tattoo artist. She is a tattoo artist. And she um, saw that I was struggling and got me as a gift, a set of watercolor pencils and some watercolor paper and said, I don't remember her exact words, but it was something along the lines of if, if Henry Matisse can paint from bed, then, then you can too. (laughs) And so I just started painting, you know, when I had graduated, I really wanted to make important work about like deep human feelings and things. And, um, and so I felt like I had to paint important subjects like people and landscapes and that sort of thing or abstract stuff. And when I was sick, by the time I had had gotten to that point, I was just so knocked down that I had like no pretensions. I was completely humbled. And I just started painting stuff that was fun for me to paint. So like food and things around the house. And so for me, my my freelance journey really was by accident. (laughs) And I, I didn't even know it at the time when I was starting to create those paintings. But that was kind of the beginning of it. Because I started putting them online and the only reason I was putting them online, and this was back in Tumblr days and I just would put, put one on Tumblr every day. And it was purely just to have something to focus on and to get myself motivated because otherwise I would just be like sitting in the house by myself doing nothing. So I was, you know, painting a different food item or sometimes like ordinary objects, shoes, pill bottles, those sorts of things. And I would put it on Tumblr every day. And after about eight months of doing that, I got an inquiry from a client and it was now they're they're now defunct, but it was Lucky Peach magazine. And it was a really cool magazine while it was around. It was David Chang, who does like the Momofoku restaurants in New York. And he had done, um, so he's like kind of a celebrity chef and he had made this magazine and it was all about art and food. So that was my first client. That was my first commission. And after I did that, I was, I sort of thought it was a one-off and I was like, oh, that's cool. That was neat that that happened. And then a little while later, I had another client, uh, another commission that was for packaging illustration. And after that one, it kind of clicked in my head. And I thought like, oh, this is something that people do. Like, this is a job that people have and, and you can work and you can make money doing this. Because I had come from the fine art background. So it really just had no concept of the commercial art world at all. So at that point, I started doing some research and kind of trying to figure out where my work might fit. And um, yeah, I can go into more detail there, but that was basically the the whole, that was the launching point. And then it took probably like another year and a half after that to where I felt like I was, you know, going to call myself a freelance illustrator. And then another year or so after that to where it was more stable. So I had a very kind of windy, atypical road. <laughs> I love it though. Sorry to hit you with that on your first day back. <laughs> It's like it, it found you. Absolutely. Eight months of daily posting yes. uh, to Tumblr as well. So, yep. so what year was this, by the way? This was late 2012 when it started. So the, the client, the first client came through in 2013. When when that client, a high profile client really, <laughs> came knocking, did you have any clue like how to respond, like what to charge, a contract or like? Oh, I had no idea. I had no idea what to charge. And they actually came through, they had a budget and they, they told me, they were like, the, the fee would be this. And because I had no concept for what it should be. I was, of course, like, oh, yeah, sounds great. (laughs) But I was very anxious about like the thing that still sticks in my mind. I was so anxious about how the process would go. Like, you know, do I show them a sketch or what phase do I show them the sketch? How do I let them make revisions? Basically, like the, the process of working with the client was totally opaque to me. I didn't really understand how to go about that. I I think there was less information available online then. Mm. And I also, you know, when you there's like multiple levels of not knowing something. Like sometimes you, you don't know something and then sometimes you don't even know what you don't know. So <laughs> yes. You can't even look for it. So at that point I was so lost. I had really no concept and I just kind of put one foot in front of the other and stumbled through that first commission. And I'm very thankful to my former self that I even said yes to the commission because I, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> wow. When you got you know, another client get in touch and perhaps another one after that. Did you then start to put yourself out there? Did you change anything or did you simply keep going? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the things that I think an attitude that I've had from the beginning that has really served me well, um, from the time I, it sort of clicked in my head that I could do this for a job. I have looked at every single client as a learning experience and I still do. I think that puts me like a really good frame of mind to evaluate 
each and every experience. And of course, in the beginning, when you're just like, or at least for me, when I was tripping all over myself, there were plenty of good learning experiences. So I would say the two things I changed the most were like how I worked with the client. And it became clear to me relatively early on that clients would look to me to direct, most clients would look to me to direct the process. Even if I was working with an art director, you know, somebody who is really familiar with the industry and who knows what they're doing, which is not always the case. You know, sometimes you work with a founder or somebody who doesn't work with artists all that often. But even if you are working with somebody who works with artists quite a bit, they still rely on you to tell them what your process is like because each artist is different. So that that became clear to me relatively early on. So I started trying to get clear about what my process was and trying to articulate that more clearly for clients and getting really good at communication with clients. And that's been something that has been just invaluable in terms of avoiding painful situations, you know, getting stuck in a not ideal working relationship with a client. I feel like by far and away, most of those can be avoided with good communication. So that was that was one thing that I kind of shifted my my posture towards clients. And instead of waiting for them to make the structure, I brought the structure. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of like reaching out to clients, I did do a little bit of that. I, at the time, I remember thinking I did quite a lot because I sent out like five or six emails. <laughs> <laughs> and now now I, I hear what other people have done and I think, oh, no. So I've never really, you know, the people who send out hundreds or thousands or whatever, I just never have done that. Really what my focus was on making work that the clients would want. So I did send out a, yeah, a few odd emails here and there, but mostly what I would do is I would look at food magazines and I would say, oh, look, they're doing food from this kind of a perspective or they're doing these sorts of subjects. And then I would try to make work that was like that, like self-initiated work, essentially. I was absolutely prolific with self-initiated work. That's not like a braggy thing. I'm just like, that was the, I was just making tons of tons and tons and tons of self-initiated work. And I would try to, if there was a particular niche or genre that I wanted to get into, I would pay really close attention to the kind of work that they used, both the kind of subjects, the way that it was presented and trying to make work that would fit in that category. Obviously not copying anybody else, but just like aiming mm. it at the same kind of target, if that makes sense. So I, I always did a lot more of that. But still relying on people to find you. Yeah. I mean, I, in, in those, in those days, yeah, that was most of mm. what I did. And I would do the, the proactive stuff that I did in those days was, which now feels a little bit silly to say, but I would like submit to different art tumblers. <laughs> so we're like, I guess blogs basically, but they were yeah. just, they would showcase different artists. So I don't know how much that helped or not, but in, in the early days, it was always just people. And it's still actually to this day, it continues to be people finding me. I think, as I mentioned, I haven't done a lot of the emailing, but for the ones that I have sent, I think I have had one job come through <laughs> from proactively emailing. And I know that it works great for some people, um, but for me, it's always been better. I've always focused more on making the kind of work that I think that the clients want mm. and then putting it out there really regularly. So I, of course, was not only on Tumblr. I, it's, at a certain point, I transitioned and did more on Instagram I started a YouTube channel in 2016 and I've never looked at that as a way to make money. Some people do make money from their YouTube channels, but for me, it has always been a way that I can connect with the community, the community that I'm a part of and give back. And it was actually very practical. Like people on Tumblr, that when my Tumblr started growing, I was getting lots of questions mostly art related questions, how to draw this or that, or how I made the colors do some specific thing. And I, I got the same questions over and over. So I would, you know, I wanted to make videos to answer them more easily. And I mentioned that because I think actually making a YouTube channel has, has also benefited my search engine performance. Oh, so I've noticed that, you know, if you search for like realistic food illustration, some very generic term, I am almost always one of the first hits to come up. After the fact, I learned that Google will sometimes prioritize content for people who have a presence on one of their platforms. So yeah, I, th I think that that helped. But yeah, the, the proactive outreach, I, I've done a few emails here and there. And then I did one postcard mailer, which was very small. I think this was like a couple years ago, and it was to maybe 30 people. 
and I, I didn't really get responses from, from any of that. Now, that being said, I am actually trying to get better about doing email stuff. <laughs> so uh, if we talk again next time, maybe I will have sent out more emails. But that's, <laughs> that's one of my goals is to, to try it, is to try that because I feel like the scale that I've done it at isn't a fair test because, you know, from what I understand from folks who have done a lot more of it, you know, they're talking hundreds and thousands of emails as opposed to, you know, my dozens. Mm. You mentioned your health uh, uh, very early on in this. How has creating this freelance life worked alongside that? For for me, it's been great. And I don't think this is true for everybody. Um, And I I didn't even realize it was true for me. But I absolutely love drawing. And it's one of the few things that I can do even when I feel really ill. And for me, chronic pain was a big component of, of what I dealt with. And even after I was on treatment, that continued to persist until I made more lifestyle changes. But even even when I was having a day where I was in pretty severe pain, you know, it would have the kind of pain that would have made me want to call out sick for my organizing job because I couldn't be, you know, standing up in front of hundreds of people leading a training, but I could be sitting down in my desk or rip more honestly, on the couch um, and painting. And for some reason, getting started was always hard if I didn't feel good. But once I got started, I would just disconnect from it. I don't know how to describe it besides that. And and I've talked with other people who have chronic health struggles, and I know that that's not the case for everybody. But for me, it seemed mm. like this absolute miracle that like, oh, wow, I've like hit upon this secret of this is like the one thing I can do to escape from the pain. And because of that, I, I felt pretty confident that I could do it as a vocation. Like I knew that I could work even when I didn't feel well. And that made me feel more confident about accepting assignments and actually doing it as a job. And if you don't mind me asking, because you mentioned health insurance as well. And in yeah. the US, obviously, that's a big thing for you. Absolutely. Do you factor that into your pricing and your business? Um, so... I probably should factor that into my pricing, <laughs> but my partner has health insurance. And so since I have been doing freelance work, I've been lucky enough to be on his. Gotcha. So that that has been kind of the way that we've taken care of it. But that's something I've talked to a lot of up and coming or freelancers who are trying to get started and been very transparent about the fact that that was a big privilege that I had mm-hmm. being able to be on my partner's health insurance. Whereas, you know, that's something for a lot of folks when they're first getting started in the US that's a it's a really big impediment because it is quite expensive to buy health insurance and for me with the health stuff that I had it would have been absolutely cost prohibitive to to have to buy it on the open market so yeah I've I've just been lucky in that respect mm. so it was a year and a half after that first pitch that you you felt like a freelance illustrator yeah. I think you said yeah yeah I think that's about right how did it start to change at that point you had tumblr and i know you you've touched upon adding bits and pieces but yeah you know like if people go to your website now obviously it'll it well <laughs> i'm not going <laughs> to describe it go take a look there's a link <laughs> at being freelance.com but clearly there's a lot more to it yes uh, how how did the business evolve yeah well so I, I i made a website i had had an etsy shop at one point and actually some clients had found me on etsy that was never a huge component of what i did But uh, yeah, I mean, I created the website, I started trying to get more strategic about the kind of work that I put together. And I think it was, um, let me let me think here about the the timeline. Um, I have actually made if anybody wants to watch it, I have actually made a very detailed video about Mm. the timeline in terms of like, which clients I got when, and even like, um, when it was when I would have counted it like a full time income. Because it did take me, I think, longer than it takes a lot of people. But it was very kind of incremental, like growing bit by bit from like, you know, twenty end of 2013 all the way up through 2016. And then in 2017, just like in terms of revenue, it doubled. And then in 2018, it doubled again. Mm-hmm. And that was when I was like, oh, OK, OK, OK. I think I have <laughs> like this is legit, I guess, like it felt, felt, it's it's always legit. It's always legit. I don't mean to, but I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. Like I'm actually like, I'm really doing this. Like I'm, you know, and, and there's something about, um, I don't know if there are listeners who have dealt with chronic health stuff at a, at a very young age, but when you're in the years where you're like, well, everyone else expects you to be healthy and you expect that of yourself and having 
just that that rug just pulled out from under you, it really makes you or it made me it really hits your confidence. So for the first number of years, I was just happy to be doing anything. <laughs> I was like, wow, I'm because I had kind of expected, wow, am I going to have to go on disability or am I not going to be able to work? Like, what is my life going to look like, essentially? So I, I just took it as a as a bonus. I was like, this is great. I'm bringing anything, any income in. And then, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, when it was like really ramping up, that's when I realized, oh, okay, like, this is my career. This is what I'm doing. Yeah, I, I think I because of having the incremental the incremental growth, I it's hard for me to point to like any one thing that's like this was the thing that made the difference beyond just being regular with the self-initiated work and then also strategic with the self-initiated work. So, you know, a lot of people will just keep making work, but they don't actually stop and think who would want to buy this work <laughs> or how does this work solve somebody else's problem or what what market does this work fit into? I think a lot, a lot of visual artists particularly have that challenge. So yeah, making lots of self-initiated work and then being strategic about how the self-initiated work could fit into an existing market. Mm. What about your work-life balance? Which, I mean, I often say that phrase or bring it up, but for you, it obviously sounded even more important. And obviously you've been doing this for quite a long time now. Yeah, I think I've gotten better at it. <laughs> um, and, and I can point to one thing in that respect that changed it. And for me, that was having kids <laughs> because I had, I had my first daughter in 2017. And prior to that, you know, between between 2013 and 2017, as I was kind of getting my feet under me, I always felt like I was behind and I had started behind everybody else. And I didn't really quite know where I was going. I just had this this pretty intense like a fire under my, uh, whatever to, to get moving. And that translated into me spending a lot of time beyond basically any time I could, I was working on something and the line between work and personal life was really not present because I also loved what I was doing and I was struggling, ironically struggling more with health stuff at that time. And focusing on painting and painting as much as possible was like a huge distraction for me from, from the pain. So I actually was not very good at uh, work-life balance with my freelance stuff with art. And then in 2017, when Penelope was born, I, um, well, two things happened. One being pregnant actually put me into remission, which was great. (laughs) So I have been incredibly healthy. And what my immunologist says is I, may end up with it coming back at some point, but they can't really tell me for sure. And basically every year that goes by that I don't have symptoms, it's an indication that if and when it does come back, at least it won't be as bad as before. So I'm off of a lot of the medications that I was on, which is just great. And I I more or less feel pretty normal. (laughs) So that, that was incredible and a surprise. Then the other thing that having kids changed was that I became aware that I really needed to have more of a clear demarcation between work and personal life because I wanted to give that kind of attention to my family. But I also really, really love my work. I really, really love what I do. So what it has looked like since 2017 is I would say like an increasing separation between personal life and work life. And it, it didn't happen all at once you know, it's kind of been gradual. So like at first it was like, I, I only had a sitter for certain times. I had very limited childcare initially, and then I would be working during the nap times, but I never really tried to work when I was also with my kids. Yeah. The more time has gone on now I have even more separation because I have a studio out of the house that I got in the very beginning of 2020, January, 2020. And so now I work here and the kids are um, in childcare and that means that when I'm here, I'm at work. And then when I'm at home, I'm at home. And I really try to be pretty strict with that, except in those rare instances where I do overcommit. And then I end up, you know, with a deadline that has to happen. Or of course, you know, you lose childcare or whatever, in which case PBS to the rescue. <laughs> um, TV, TV, public television. <laughs> <laughs> With a quote-unquote educational programming. I must admit, I was sitting here thinking PBS, PBS. And then <laughs> I was it? thinking, that actually sounds like it should be a rapper or something. Okay. <laughs> Maybe they're doing no, childcare on the not. side because the hip-hop scene doesn't pay too well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. 
No, just uh, educational, public funded educational okay, television. Sure. So, um, yes, uh, just had one of those days last week, actually. But yeah, have, having kids has, has really helped motivate me to have that work life balance and that separation. And yeah, that's something, one of the many things I'm grateful for about having had children. You mentioned at one point about like, uh, you know, sometimes if I, if I overcommit and I have to do this. Uh, yes. So, <laughs> so how do you manage that workload and saying no to uh, people? Or maybe you say yes to everyone. I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of like when you're overconfident. <laughs> so for a while I'll be going along and I've not overcommitted to anything and I've had like a really good workload and be feeling really confident about my abilities to execute things and get things done. And then, you know, another project will come up and then a regular client will pop back in and it'll be this kind of convergence of events. And I'll say, I, yeah, I can handle that. And I'll, I'll agree to that. And then, you know, we'll lose childcare for a day or somebody will get sick or, you know, the client turns out to actually want more than they initially said that they wanted. Some confluence of events will happen (laughs) and then I'll end up um, like this happened uh, two weeks ago where I was just working the entire weekend. And that was many different things that collided <laughs> to make that happen. And whenever whenever it does happen, the few times a year that it happens, I just am super motivated and I commit to myself. I'm never doing that again. That's awful. I <laughs> never do that again. Um, and then I go, you know, six or eight months and then it happens again. But um, I think I think overall, it's just you know, keep keeping the balance is primarily a function of um, of having done this for a longer time now. So mm. for for quite a while, I would underbook myself because I really was afraid of ever having to say to a client that I was late or and I still have never turned in work late. <laughs> I'm kind of like pathologically on time with stuff, but I was very afraid of having to do that or, or of, of putting forth that image of like not being organized or whatever. And I think for a lot of creative people who are not natural, I am not a naturally organized person. It's it's something I've really struggled with my whole life. So it's like kind of a soft spot. It's a learned skill. So I would just constantly underbook and turn down a lot of jobs in, mm. in those first few years because I would worry, oh, am I already overcommitted? And the more experience that I've gotten, the more I realize like I can handle quite a lot more than I thought I could, which is great. And then I also just have this sense, um, I don't know if this makes sense or if you relate to this at all, but I feel like when you're first starting out, you're like so uncertain. And then the more yeah, the more confident that you get, you just have this sense that it's going to be okay. Like, and, and I do have that feeling now, like, even if, even if I'm committed to a bunch of projects and I lose childcare, like, I know it's going to be okay. Like I'll figure out a way to make it work. I'll juggle with my partner or, you know, I'll stay up late or whatever. Like I know that I know that's going to be okay. So I feel like that confidence or that sense of what my abilities actually are, that has enabled me to be fairly realistic most of the time in what I commit to. And I, I never commit to things where I'm like, you know, if the client says, I want this by, you know, three days from now, and it's a, a four week project, I just never commit. I, I would never do that. <laughs> I'm very confident to just say, no, sorry, this is going to be how long it takes. I hope we can work together. But, you know, this is what it would look like if you if you want to work with me. Yeah. So I think it's having the experience, knowing what to expect from yourself and kind of what problems can typically come up with the client. And then also having that sense or that trust that, which is also, I guess, a kind of confidence in yourself, like that that things are going to be okay, that you'll be able to figure it out, even if there are some bumps in the road. Yeah. Uh, Do you know, I must say there was a line on your website, which really caught my eye, because I've looked at a lot of freelance websites. And I'm not sure I've ever seen this particular line where you said, so you said, uh, no, no, it's good. (laughs) So I'm committed to meeting all project deadlines, which you said, right? Yeah, excellent. And then you say working within the budget whenever possible. That's wonderful, because you've kind of laid it out there (laughs) right at the beginning. So um, yeah, I guess that's yeah. part of you, you said about communicating with with Absolutely. clients. Absolutely, but mm-hmm. but what's that about? Is that being bitten by scope creep or or like yeah, what, what, what's that? Absolutely, that's some of that. You know, and, and some some of it's being bitten by scope creep, and then which has was a huge issue for me early on, um, and I think I've gotten a lot better at dealing with that. But then it's also something 
a situation that will come up fairly frequently is a client will come to me wanting something and then they'll have a budget in mind that is completely out of line with what they say that they want um, or there, there's no way to really connect those two things. And I do still try to find a way to make it work for them, whether it's by you know, suggesting if, if, it's, if the budget's very low, usually it's me suggesting, how about you reuse this one image? You know, you pay a licensing fee and reuse this image that I've already created. Oh. Um, or, you know, I'll recommend like what they would need to come up to to have a custom illustration created. And then, you know, other ways that I can sometimes shrink a budget is, you know, if they are really flexible on a timeline and they can give me a really long time, you know, like four weeks, six weeks to work on something and I can just squeeze it in here and there. Or, you know, for me, um, size is, is a pretty big thing. So, you know, if they're wanting something that's, that's really, really detailed and done at a very large size, like, you know, 20 inches or something like that, and they have a small budget, I would say, well, how do you feel about me doing something that's four by four inches? <laughs> and um, so I don't just automatically say, I, nice. I try, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't just automatically say no, or I, that I can't work with you. Both because I really just as a human being, I always want to be kind. <laughs> I think you can be really firm with your budget and your value. And you can also be a really kind uh, person. <laughs> and I try to do both. And especially, you know, I find that the clients that that have the really unrealistic budgets are usually clients who don't work with illustrators very often. You know, it's somebody who they're a family business or they're a startup or they, they have never commissioned an illustration. So, you know, I had, I had one come through the other day that um, I won't name them of course, but they wanted to pay $200, 200 us dollars for six, eight by 10 really realistic illustrations. <laughs> and yeah. And it was, you know, a minimum of 40 hours worth of work uh, minimum. And then, you know, that's of course not even accounting for the like, illustration is priced um, or, or, uh, not always, but it, it really should be priced by both how much it costs to make it. And then also the usage fee, how much, uh, value the client is going to be getting out of it, what they're going to use it for. So it would be, you know, 40 hours worth of work without even considering the, the usage that they're going to mm -hmm. get out of it. And they were wanting to pay $200. So I did recommend potentially reusing some illustrations, although even with that, they wouldn't have been able to work within the, the $200 budget. But I, I try never to just have my response back be no, it's usually kind of a, a no and or, you know, mm -hmm. that won't really work, but let's try this. And part of the reason for that, as I mentioned, yes, is the trying to be kind. But then it's also you don't know where somebody's going to end up in five years or 10 years. Yes. And yeah, um, yeah, everything yeah. that that is part of from a very practical standpoint, um, or this probably will even sound a little bit mercenary, but that's part <laughs> of the reason why it's so important to be kind is, is because, mm. yeah, you don't know. I, I want somebody to be left with a good impression and to feel not to feel bad about themselves as a person after having dealt with me. You know, I, I think being told oh, you're, you're cheap or you don't have enough budget or whatever, like that will not make somebody feel good. And so even if the end result is I'm not going to be able to work within their budget, I still want them to feel positive after their interaction with me. Oh, I love that. So have you consciously sort of built up a library of images that you can license out to people, as you say? Um, I would say I've accidentally built up. <laughs> it's, it's more just a function of having, yeah, having been so prolific with self-initiated work. And then also for most commercial work, I still retain copyright. So I've you know licensed a specific use for a client, but especially for editorial stuff, like their, their usage, they're only using it for their, their license is something like six months to a year usually. And then after that, I can use it for whatever I want. And then, you know, commercial stuff like for packaging or advertising or whatever is a bit different. But even so, many of those clients are only granted a particular use. So if there's something that's in a totally different arena, I could potentially license that illustration to somebody else who, you know, is, of course, would pose no competition. You know, I'm talking about like if an illustration was made for like a, a food package and then somebody wants to put it on um, fabric for swimsuits, which has actually happened to me. <laughs> Um, then, you know, they're obviously not going to be competing. So it's, it's fine to do, but I would never like take an illustration that I'd made for one brand's food package and license it to another brand's food package. That's, yeah. that would be a big, a big no, no. But um, yeah, a combination of having done the, the, the large amount of self-initiated work and then having kept my copyright. 
Mm. Are there other ways that you you have income coming in? So client work yeah. is clearly the big one. Absolutely, yeah. Client work is, um, I just did this math the other day, actually. I think client work is like 72% or something like that. That's a very precise. <laughs> well, I, I, I finally just got an accountant this year. <laughs> I was like, ah. yes. Um, so that was a, a big step for me. I, I incorporated as an LLC and um, I'm working with a business accountant now um, just because it's gotten a little bit too unwieldy to, to manage it myself. Yeah, so client work is the majority. And then I do probably the, the biggest one after that is classes. So I make Skillshare classes and put those online. And yeah, those are really kind of the two big buckets. Other smaller things, uh, you know, I get a tiny, tiny amount of like YouTube ad revenue. But again, that's like, I put no effort into that. I don't, I don't really do sponsors because it, for the scale of channel that I have, like it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's more work than it would be worth. And then occasionally I'll do like probably once a year, I'll do some sort of big retail thing. Like I'll do a studio sale where I try to clear out a bunch of originals. So there's a small portion that comes from, from retail. But you know, when I was getting started earlier on, that was a much bigger proportion. And I was, I had like a pretty active Etsy shop. It wasn't ever like one of there are really big Etsy shops and people who are like very serious and who are doing orders every day. You know, for me, it was when my Etsy store was like really, really kicking. It was, you know, like probably five or six orders a week. So never anything massive. But now I it's just too it's too much to keep that up regularly and be doing client work. I feel like you kind of have to pick a lane. So now my shop is basically like it's kind of on autopilot. So I have like a print on demand thing, kind of like Society6, but it's it's integrated to Etsy and uh, that just takes care of itself. Um, so, yeah, it's mostly client work and then some online classes. And I think online classes doing that was a really good decision for me. And I recommend that to other creative people all the time, because what it gives you is some amount of stability, like, you know, even if it's not going to be the biggest paycheck, like there's going to be something every month and you know the date that it's going to happen, <laughs> which is not the case with clients. And I think having that and then also I have tried to maintain a balance with the types of clients that I work with. So I have two kind of ongoing larger editorial clients where I know I'm going to be doing stuff for them every month. And then the the stuff for packaging clients, which is kind of the other big bucket, packaging and advertising, that comes in in waves. You know, there'll be a whole bunch of it and then, you know, a little bit of a lull and then a whole bunch of it and a little bit of a lull. But having, yeah, having the different streams of income is great. And then having different types of clients if possible. So not not being all concentrated in one niche trying to have your experience and your clients spread across multiple niches, I think can really help balance things out with, with respect to freelance illustration. Mm. When it comes to the Skillshare, how yeah. much time, like, well, well yeah. actually, <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> I love, oh boy, I love we're going to get into it. <laughs> the preemptive sound effects that you yes. make. Um, so first of all, we should say like, what, what kind of thing are you doing on there? Is it like a short course of, you know, hand short. paint? Yeah, yeah, short. So usually they're about an hour, although I am in process of making one that is going to be longer. It's a, a little bit of an experiment, but I got into Skillshare. I think I'm trying to remember whether it was a, a YouTube viewer or whether it was somebody from Skillshare, somebody reached out to me and asked me to make a class and I had never considered it before. And I, made a class and it didn't, it felt like a more involved version, like a longer, more involved YouTube video. Mm. And I started doing those in 2017 or 2018. At first I, I had this goal that I wanted to do one every month, which was an absolutely bonkers goal. Like I never, <laughs> I don't know where I had that idea from, um, but I, I quickly uh, realized that that wasn't going to happen. So then I had the goal of doing two a year. And what I have realized is really I can manage one about like every eight or nine months. So it takes about the same time as growing a human baby. <laughs> and it's not quite as much work. Having done both, I can tell you it is definitely more work being pregnant. But, um, but it is, it's, it's definitely labor intensive. And if you're going to make something that's good, it's, um, yeah, it's challenging. And I think it, it actually hits on some of the same pain points that having an Etsy shop does 
where, you know, I think the people that I see, the artists that I see who do really well with online classes and who are just churning them out, that is the main thing they do. And with anything, you become more streamlined with what you do more consistently. So for me, because most of what I'm spending my time doing is client work, but that is where I have most of my streamlining, most of my efficiency. And every time I go to make a Skillshare class, there's certain things I, I always hit the same bumps in the road. I'm like, oh yeah, I have to deal with this camera setting again. Or, you know, I, I know how to use uh, a camera and filming equipment, but I'm not like really good at it because I haven't ever had to get really good at it <laughs> because I'm only doing it intermittently, you know? And when I do stuff for YouTube, I just kind of throw that together. I'm not even that careful with it because it's just kind of a fun thing for me. But, you know, if I make a Skillshare class, it has to look good. The sound has to be good. There, ha there are much higher standards so I, I'm pretty confident that if I did them more often, they would feel easier to me. But because they are this kind of intermittent thing, it always feels a bit like pulling teeth to get one done. But I can say unequivocally that it's been a good thing. And if you're looking for like a concrete number in terms of like how long it takes, for me, I would say I plan on one class taking probably, a, you know, somewhere between 25 to 35 hours worth of work. Well, no, let's probably probably even closer to 40 hours on some of them. It depends on the class. So it's 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 not a little time investment. And then that's just like to make the class that that's just the planning and the filming and stuff. Then you also have to edit it, which is a whole other ball game, And that can get really complex as well. So all told, probably it's close to two weeks worth of work to make a class. And the problem for me is that I, I really don't very often, you know, in the, the beginning of my Skillshare journey, when I started making stuff for Skillshare, I had more windows of time where I would just have complete downtime, like, you know, two or three weeks where there wasn't a client in sight. And, um, you know, of course, then that was extremely anxiety provoking and I would get really worried that I was never going to work again. But now that really almost never happens anymore. And I have to set aside time to work on Skillshare in between things. And that is my biggest challenge, um, not, not Skillshare specifically, but you know, finding time to do all of the non-client stuff, like everything from updating portfolio to, to doing billing and admin to making a class to making anything self-initiated. Any of that stuff is just orders of magnitude more difficult <laughs> to find time for than it used to be, both because of having kids and really wanting to not work once I leave the studio. And then also just because of being much more busy with much busier with client work than I used to be. How do you make time? <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know when I figure it out. <laughs> You'll make a Skillshare video about it. I'm being very honest. Like that is my big struggle right now. And right. I, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying. The, the best thing, the kind of hint that I have that may be the, the right track to follow, the thing that I'm working on right now is just even if I feel like I don't have time to do something, just deciding to do that thing first. So the thing that keeps getting bumped, the thing that keeps getting pushed because I, you know, quote unquote, don't have time because I have to do this client stuff. I will make a decision at the beginning of the day. I'm going to do this for two hours, even though I feel like I don't have those two hours, if that makes sense. And then, you know, kind of letting the chips fall where they may with respect to the I other like stuff. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, that's my working hypothesis at the moment. And just to touch on Skillshare, just one more time, very quickly. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because so, obviously you have an audience who have found you on, mm. say, Instagram yep. or Tumblr or YouTube, all these things you've put so much time into. Yeah. But it, am I right in saying the other benefit of Skillshare is that they have their own audience who they That's a great to. point. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's another audience there. And, you know, there are plenty of teachers. So I'm, I'm actually a, um, a top teacher on Skillshare, which basically they have some – I forget their metric for it, but essentially it's like the 1% most engaging, the upper 1% most engaging classes. However, they figure that out. They have some metrics that they look at, but of the top teachers, I probably have one of the, not, not the biggest. There are definitely top teachers with bigger social, uh, social media presences than I have, but most of the top teachers that I have interacted with have smaller social media presences than me. So you don't have to have like a massive audience to do well there. I think I probably started doing well a little more quickly because I had a, an audience to start with. But then the great thing about Skillshare, as opposed to, you know, YouTube 
is it's just a much smaller ecosystem and it's actually still managed and curated by people. So they, they of course, have algorithms, but they also have people who are constantly looking through new classes and scouring classes. And if they see stuff that's good, they will lift it up. They will, you know, make it a staff pick. They'll feature it. And that's a big plus, I think, and a big reason why, you know, somebody with a, without much of an audience, I would say if they're looking to do um, online education, definitely start on a place like Skillshare. You know, I know that there are other ones too, but start in one where you, where you have an audience there. It's just like, if you're going to have a freestanding, like standalone shop on your website versus like something on Etsy, you know, it's, it's a marketplace essentially. So if you don't have a, um, a big audience on your own, starting with a marketplace that has a built-in audience can be really helpful. Mm. Now, Kendall, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself oh, yes. <laughs> to make two true and one a lie and let yes. me figure out the lie. So what do you have for me? All right. Okay. So first one is I have a splinter in my finger that has been there since I was in high school. Still, still in my finger. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right. Number two, I have won two pie eating contests. <laughs> number three, I was homeschooled all the way through from kindergarten through 12th grade. Pie eating. What were the pies? Blueberry and apple. How big were the pies? A full on, like a complete pie. Like the kind that have the, the throwaway tins. And what was the challenge? Forgive me, but I've not been in a pie eating contest. Oh, I feel like I've missed my calling. You can't use your hands. You have to, well, at least one guys, and you can't <laughs> you have to just like full on put your face down in the pie and yeah, and eat it. And, and I, I will say I won, but you, I didn't have to consume all of the crust. There was still some crust left in there. I did it the fastest. I hope that's true. I'm so proud of you. Um, but I don't know. Surely is that a thing? Okay. You got a splinter. Splinters surely work their way out. Isn't that just the, the body wants to get rid of it? That is what one would think, but it's in my left pinky. And I got it because I was quickly moving clothes on a, like in a closet. I was moving clothes down the rack so I could hang something else up. And a splinter went into my pinky and I pulled it out and I thought I got all of it, but there was a big piece still in there and it has moved. I can tell you that it has moved, but it is still in there. You can see it. You can feel it. And if I could, so I can like press on the side, (laughs) so gross. I can like press on the side of my pinky and you can kind of see it when I do that. But if you're just looking at my hands, you wouldn't see a splinter in there, no. And so the third one, you were totally always homeschooled. Mm -hmm. Who did the teaching? Uh, So when I was really young, it would be my mom or my dad. And then by the time I was in like fourth or fifth grade, it was pretty much independent. I would just be given the books and told to, to read and do the assignments. And that was it. Oh, gosh. Okay, I mean, I've got to say... Are these good? (laughs) These are great. Maybe it's because I want the pie eating to be true. I must admit, it sounds ridiculous, but I want it to be true. I think we've all been talking about homeschool. Maybe... No, I don't know. I'm going to say that is the lie. All right, that's your final answer? Yeah. Okay, the pie eating contest is the lie. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable! I wish it was, it was true. <laughs> it was so unbelievable. <sighs> uh, I was, I had, this was like the mo- the only part of coming on that made me anxious was the two truths and a lie. <laughs> because I'm such a terrible liar. And I was like, maybe I should say I won like a swimming contest. And then I realized I know nothing about swimming. What do I know anything about besides drawing? I know about pie. <laughs> <laughs> Well done. Now, <laughs> Kendall, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? Oh, man, this is hard, too. So um, I, I would say to make sure that whatever it is that you're that you're freelancing in, that it's the, the thing that you enjoy spending time on the most, because it's going to be hard. There will be a lot of challenges and you have to really love the thing that you're doing if you're going to stick with it and become successful at it. So I would focus on finding the process, finding the thing that you enjoy doing the most, and then building it around that. Nice. You mentioned at one point, like, uh, I know you doubled revenue or tripled revenue or whatever. You know, it was oh, like yes. year on year yes, thing, yes, yes. things were getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Was that because you had more work or because you put your prices up or a combination? Like, because it sounds great. Yep, I think it was a combination. So it was, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that I had, like from the beginning, I would have these gaps, you know, and in very early on, there were huge gaps. You know, I would have like six weeks without any clients and those gaps kind of gradually got smaller and smaller. So that was one thing, like it was just much more constant mm. booking. And then I had a couple of clients that were ongoing clients. Uh, so projects that I like editorial stuff that I would do every month. And then I started putting my prices up, especially with commercial stuff with like packaging illustration and not even to like the highest high end, but like to more like middle of the road prices. Cause I think a lot of people, um, I, I, I try to talk really transparently about pricing on YouTube quite a lot because I think it's, it helps everybody. But I was like a lot of people very nervous with pricing initially and probably underquoted for stuff. So in those years where, or things were just growing exponentially, it was also just because I was coming up to more industry standard rates in the U S there's a, a book called the graphic artist guild handbook for pricing and ethical guidelines. It's a mouthful. Um, some people just call it the gag guide. Uh, <laughs> And it has pricing tables in it. And from what I understand from some friends in the UK, there are resources like that for for illustrators. But I guess maybe that would be the other thing I would say to my younger self about freelancing is get some concrete pricing information because it just makes a world of difference when you feel confident knowing instead of just stabbing in the dark thinking like this is what something should cost. Uh, this is what something should cost. Having a concrete idea of what other people in your industry are charging is just so, so helpful. And, you know, being able to aim for kind of middle of the road. Yeah, I think that that's part of what what brought it up that level as well. Oh, Kendall, it's been so good to talk to you. Please do go to beingfreelance.com. There will be links through to all the many places that you can find Kendall, of course, her website. Uh, but do check her out on YouTube and Instagram and Skillshare. And anyway, all at beingfreelance.com. Also, there you will find uh, the How to Get Started Being Freelance course. You'll find details about the book club, the community, so you can come out and hang out with other freelancers from around the world uh, with me there. And, uh, you know, we've talked for a fair bit here about, like, running a business around a family at the same time and stuff like that. Don't forget, I also do another podcast. It's called Doing It For The Kids. Um, it was the best business podcast at the British Podcast Awards uh, this year so some people think it's all right i reckon you should give it a go um if that sounds like you you're a self-employed parent like uh, myself and kendall uh, it's called doing it for the kids so search for that wherever you got this uh, but for now kendall thank you so much and all the best being freelance thank you steve